And we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So if you'll turn to that place in your Bible, we are going to read from verse 11. That is um, not right. That's all right, your handout is right. Yeah, 18, huh? You know, that's one of those frustrating things in the world is when you you ask Lester, you proofread something 40 bazillion times and there's something so obviously still wrong. Oh well. (laughs) Just uh, these aids in humility we all need, I suppose. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number 18. Then we will have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into what promises to be a wonderful passage today. And we're going to pray especially that God will bless us as we look at these verses together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when God... Uh, When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So join me, would you? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are glad for the Lord's Day. Every time it comes, we're thankful that this is the way we begin our week, that we have a day and you have put it upon our hearts because of your grace working in our lives uh, to understand that this day is special, to understand uh, the prospect for blessing that it holds, and to give ourselves over to those things that you describe uh, for us to do today. So we're here gathered together in your place, just as you tell us to do, looking for your blessing, waiting upon you, asking you to cleanse our hearts, asking you to help us to focus. Lord, because every one of us brings a multitude of things into the house of God, when we come on Sunday, a whole week has gone by, and perhaps many years have gone by, that still hold cares, concerns, anxieties, worries. We can't really do much about those right now, so I pray that you would just help us to put them aside give us the ability to focus and look at your word and open our hearts, Lord. We just, uh, our minds are darkened apart from your illumining ray. And we pray, Father, that you would just open your word to our hearts today and our hearts to your word. For this we pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. All right, well, today we are in lesson number five, and you do have that correctly at the top of what you're looking at there. Let me quick just remind you what we're doing with Leviticus because sometimes someone new comes in or whatever, but it's always good just to be reminded of a few things even though I don't want to labor it. But remember, we're looking at 1 Peter and we're looking at the idea that Christ is sufficient in suffering. 
pretty much anybody with any familiarity with 1 Peter knows that uh, the key subject in the book is suffering. But like I've said to you before, for us just to say that is of some help, but it's not necessarily as much help as trying to figure out what is the key thing that the book is trying to tell us about suffering. And, and I'm certainly not telling you that my presentation is inspired, but I think this is one that works and one that can be helpful to us, and I'll describe it only in those terms. But Christ is sufficient in suffering. And how do we see that developed in the book? Well, first of all, because his salvation sustains us. We have that running from chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 10. We're in the second section now. The second reason that we see that his, uh, <clears throat> he is sufficient in suffering is because his example guides us. We actually are in the passage today that has the key verse that I gave you for that. Verse 21 of chapter 2, look at that again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And it actually says, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so that's the key verse for the section, but it's certainly not the only one that emphasizes the idea of Christ's sufferings and indicates that then uh, these become exemplary or uh, instructive to us. And uh, so in this section, <clears throat> beginning in chapter 2, verse 12 and running, or 11, and running down through uh, the end of chapter 14, we've got eight things that we're looking at, eight applications of this idea of looking for the example, with the key thought really being throughout that it's the idea of being submissive. And I pointed this out to you before. We won't label or labor that again, but it certainly comes up right away in verse 18. In our opening verse of our section today, servants be subject to your masters. So it was in the section before when we looked at civic life. Today we're looking at the Christian as an employee. And uh, what I would like to do is just to emphasize a couple things to you at the outset, still in the introduction. In order to be technically correct, look at the first statement. Peter's second application in this section is to household servants. And it's important, I think, to say this because it's important for us to really be accurate and try to understand the original context of the Bible and then to try to draw the applications that we can from that. Household servants. Um, so let's distinguish a couple of words. Um, and, and there is some discussion among different uh, Bible preachers and teachers about how some of these words should be translated. But the most familiar word that we have translated in the New Testament in the original is doulos, and that comes over into English. We use that in some different contexts too. But when you were, when you were thinking about a doulos, you're basically thinking about someone who abs had absolutely no rights. Uh, this would be a bond, a bond slave. And so some people are very stern about the idea that, well, you know, it's translated servant in the New Testament doesn't quite bring out the fullness of the, the context of the meaning in the original that these people were slaves. Okay. That's fine with me. Whatever you want to say on that, I don't think it's worth being um, overly uh, pedantic over. But this is not that word, and that's the most common word. So we don't have Peter now reaching out. That first word in verse 18 is not douloi. It's not servants. It's rather another word um, that means a household servant. Now, you might see this guy coming down the street, and you might not know that. And the reason for it is is because... A doulos would be a more general word, but this would be more specific in the sense that, okay, I, I'm going to give you an illustration to think about. Um, I'm sure many of you remember when the series was on Downton Abbey. Okay, I see a few smiles, so you remember this. 
and uh, I actually enjoy listening to the soundtrack from that. But uh, those shows were pretty interesting, really. And so think about this for a moment. How many people does it take to run a place like Downton Abbey? A few, right? I mean, even if you tour around South Carolina in the upstate, or you can go down to where I grew up in the low country, and you go to some of the plantations. Now, I, you know, I know that word is not so popular today, but that's what they were, so I'm just trying to communicate. But um, you go to some of these places, and you start looking at the house, just like you look at Downton Abbey, and you say, okay, you've got this huge mansion or house, whatever you want to call it, and uh, you have all these rooms. Guess what? In those days, they didn't have HVAC. At least their version wasn't like ours. So if you wanted heat, guess what you had? A fireplace. All right, how many people here have ever depended upon a fireplace for your heat? Oh, yeah, well, the power goes off, maybe. Some of you might have done a little bit more. Um, I think it's safe to say maybe one winter, maybe not. But in Pennsylvania, the whole time we were there in, in our home that we built, um, I, you know, I had forced warm air heat. Uh, I had an oil furnace, but I never used that exclusively. I'm not, people, they asked me when we sold our house, how, what are your heating bills? And I said, well, I can express it to you this way. Basically, 200 gallons of oil and three to five cords of wood. That's what I can tell you. And I, I always used to sort of look at it that I was working for myself. And uh, with, with the, but I had a wood stove. It's still some work. And it, you know, this is my whole point. You have a fireplace in every room. I had one wood stove. But that's still a lot of work. And my wife can tell you because when, when I was injured, here she was trying to look after me and then uh, mind that as well. And that about did her in. But I mean, it, it, you know, if you're a firebug, so to speak, and now don't take that in an arsonist sense, but if you enjoy a fire, it's, you know, you'd, give yourself to it with a little less, uh, uh, you know, it's not as, not as uh, much of an imposition maybe to you. You kind of enjoy it, but it's still work. So they had household servants. That's what we were talking about. These oiketes. Um, oikos in, in Greek is house. So you might meet this guy coming down the street. He, he might have some authority, especially the lead guy. He would, be a, he would be what we call in the New Testament a steward. And Oikonomos, he was the household ruler. He, so you might meet this guy coming down the street. He might be somewhat prosperous. He might, you know, have some decent clothes on. It's not like you're looking at somebody that was just, he didn't have position. But that's that, the domestics. Let's put it that way. We're talking to the domestics. That's what Peter is talking to the domestics, the people that, that but they still had masters. And uh, when we look at this verse, servants be subject to your masters, he does choose to use a word that really emphasizes that because he uses the word in the original language from which we have our English word despot. And so you get the, you get the distinct idea from that that this person had absolute control, and that, does, that is what that word means. So it's interesting to point some of this stuff out. We don't have any of that today, right? And the closest we're going to be able to come to this is employment. So that, I think, is the key application, although I'm sure you could, you could come up with others. And especially there, I mentioned uh, in the introduction, especially in contexts where you have to, to really bring it home to kind of the context of First Peter with suffering and persecution and this type of thing, you get into contexts where you have uh, people whose responses to Christians uh, are hostile, a 
hostile boss or even co-workers, well, now you can get right into what Peter is talking about. And there are two key thoughts we're going to be looking at today. Peter, and, and this is the way I just chose a sentence to summarize what goes on here. Peter certainly acknowledges in reaching out to these people, he acknowledges the provocation. He acknowledges the unjust things that can take place in this type of an environment. And it can happen at work, too. Some unjust things can happen in a work environment, right? So uh, we can make those applications. But you have three verses dealing with that, 18, 19, and 20. But really, Peter, I think, is somewhat anxious to get to what he really wants to talk about because here's where the, the moral suasion comes in. What's going to help you and me in a context like this if we're suffering unjustly? Well, Christ is sufficient in suffering. That's the whole point. And so we're going to be able to look at his example. But I'll tell you, folks, we're going in these verses to get into one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament that has to do with Christ's sufferings. And so um, it'll be a mistake, as I'll point out in just a few moments, for all that we see here, if all that we see here is an example. But we will see that much, and we'll see more. So let's talk about provocation. So... Whether or not you have a context of persecution, which is sort of the backdrop of what's either there or approaching in 1 Peter, it's either right there, it's on the horizon, either way you look at it, um, it's, a, it's a backdrop that Peter is thinking about when he writes. Whether it had actually reached these people where they were or not, it wasn't far around the corner. And as I mentioned, you can always get this just because this world is no friend to grace. You're in these contexts, and you're a Christian, and you have a testimony, and you understand and are trying to do your best to, to live up to the New Testament obligation, salt and light, Matthew chapter 5. Well, it doesn't matter how gracious you are, salt still has a seasoning effect, right? And light has an exposing effect. And so when you don't necessarily enjoy um, the nasty stories they tell, yeah, I had this. I remember when I was done with all of my formal training and was just sort of praying and waiting on uh, what I thought might be the first service position uh, that I would go to from, from Greenville. I worked at a textile place in town. In fact, um, Don Heinemann worked there. And it was called Carolina Form Fabrics. So, you know, when I worked there, uh, you know, you'd, you'd get to, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that, you have your first break. Well, if you went in the break room, um, you not only had clouds of smoke, cigarette smoke, not the textile stuff, that was bad enough. But then you had the, you know, and I mean, they knew I was a Christian, so I, they might have modified it a little bit, but there was still some of it around. But, you know, I didn't want to be the, have the, the, the reputation. I mean, if it had gotten really bad, it would have been one thing, but I didn't want to have the reputation, oh, he's too good for us. So I would sort of try to, do with them what I could and just maintain a proper testimony, but it's still there, right? There's a little bit of a rub in, in some of those things sometimes. And so whether or not there's persecution, you can get this. That's my point that I'm making here. You have some that are some bosses and some coworkers that are kind and gentle. Um, what, is, what is it to be gentle? You don't always think of, of men or even women in contexts like this of being gentle because they're in positions of authority, so they aren't always gentle. But it's not a bad translation, but probably if you were to think of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, 
I don't think I have this verse, no. So, but, um, you know, it says in the King James, let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. You remember that? And moderation is this very same word here, and probably in going through those passages before, uh, and I actually think the ESV translates it that way in that, in that text, your reasonableness. But some people are just flat out unreasonable. And that may or may not have to do with your Christianity. Your Christianity might sort of make that kick into gear a little more. Other people are kind, some people are kind and gentle, but other people are unjust. Now, I won't take issue, but I will do some explaining here. Um, I, I'm not particularly fond of this translation, unjust, in this verse, for the simple reason that it confuses us, I think, a bit. You get down to verse 19, and it says at the very end of the verse, while suffering unjustly. But that really is the word that should be translated unjustly at the end of verse 19, adikos. Um, that's clearly what that word means. This, however, is a different word, and it's rather colorful, because skolios in Greek, and you can see right away, I, I put up there for you what you get out of that, is scoliosis. How many people know what scoliosis is? You don't have to say you have it. Okay, it isn't fun particularly if it becomes pronounced. And if it becomes a little pronounced, well then you get into spinal stenosis and you get into pinched nerves and all this kind of thing. But you basically know that it's when your spine's not as straight as it needs to be. Particularly you notice this laterally. In other words, not just you have curvature of the spine as a vertical situation, but when you get it laterally, then you have this scoliosis. And I, I won't venture too far because I'm not a I'm not a medical doctor, but I do know something about scoliosis. And uh, so, what's that? Crooked. And there are a lot of crooked people. They aren't just all bosses. Now, I don't, again, no. Um, so, here's a verse I think you're familiar with. Philippians chapter 2. Let me go to this one too. Uh, See, sometimes what happens is I have all this done, and then I think of another verse, and sometimes I change it, and sometimes I don't to add the verse. But if we were to go over to Philippians chapter 2, uh, here's the verses again that you're familiar with. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of, now here's our word, a crooked scolios a crooked and twisted, that's perverse in the King James, generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So there's a place where ESV renders it literally and correctly as crooked. I'd rather have something like that here because I think it helps preserve word distinctions because when you get down later, you really do have unjustly, and this is really not, I mean, it's, it's a word that, that could be a loose synonym that you could use, but it's really not it's really not the word. Something like harsh or crooked is probably a better way um, to render this, and you certainly have people like that. But now here's the thing. If you're a, a domestic, if you're a household servant, you're still a servant. You still are the property of someone, so you can't just quit. So we're, we're living now in the midst of what they call the, what, the great resignation? <laughs> I mean, I don't know it doesn't quite compute with my upbringing in, in ethics, but I, 
I guess it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, people who resign aren't working. I guess if you were going to resign and, and be on the dole, that would be more of what I was just referring to. But that's another whole subject. And people, uh, this coronavirus thing has just made a lot of changes in society. I think I've read some articles where people, it said, they say, well, a lot of this is, is people seeing, I can't go back to that. It's people seeing how ra ragged they were running themselves and the cost that it accumulated to them and to their family and then decided, well, there's something, got to be something better to do. Um, but regardless of this, this, this is what we've got here. And you couldn't just quit, so what, what were you going to do in a situation like this? And Peter mentions, here's, here's some of the provocation, here's some of the uh, abuse that that you might get into with these uh, crooked and harsh people. He mentions several things. First of all, he mentions pain. Uh, so in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of one, when, when mindful of God, which by the way, that is literally conscious of God or consciousness or conscience of God is, is the word, it's the regular word for conscience here. And ESV translates it, mindful of God, which is a little loose, but it works. Um, it says, one endures, okay, here's number one, sorrows. This word sorrows is a word that just means pain, and it could be physical or mental, and you can certainly see instances in which um, a servant might experience actual physical pain. Um, we get down to verse number 24. Um, again, ESV translates a little differently than maybe you're used to in the King James, but right at the end of the verse it says, By his wounds you have been healed. Who remembers the King James translation on that? By his what? Stripes. By his stripes. Well, stripes is also a very good translation of this word rendered wounds down there. And Peter, I think, chooses that word very uh, knowingly because that's a word that's going to reach right out to somebody in a context like this. They would know something about maybe experiencing a lash. He said, well, Jesus was crucified. Yeah, well, he was also scourged. Let's not forget that. So, I mean, this really, this really, Peter knows what he's doing when he's writing these words. So that's the first thing he mentions. The second thing he mentions, um, sorrows. In the next verse, it says, what credit is it when you sin and are beaten? Um, I think King James says buffeted. And uh, either one works. Um, but that word, as you see in what I have written here for you, is literally to strike with the fist. Or we have an expression for that. We would say you cuff someone. I don't mean handcuffs. But you just cuff them. It's not quite the same thing as when you're having some fun with kids or other people and you flick them. You know what that is? There's someone here that does that. She's not in this class. <laughs> but you, you, know, you go up to somebody and get them in the ear like that. This is a little different. This is something um, that could be painful. And I do have this verse for you. This, this, this word is used. In Matthew 26, 67, when it says, they spit in his face and struck him. Kolophidzo in Greek is to cuff or to strike with the hands. These words are just all, I mean, they have so much color to them, but beyond the color they have to them, 
especially now as we're going to start working towards the latter part of this, they all start bringing Christ before us, all right, which is always good to do. So two things are mentioned there, but then as you get later, and he talks about what Christ experienced, it says in verse 23, he was reviled. So there's a, thir a third thing that you can talk about. To be reviled is verbal abuse. And when that happened, it says he did not re revile in return. Um, and uh, then also it mentions he did not threaten, which Ephesians 6.9 is an exhortation that's given. This is a temptation to masters. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. I like, I don't like that translation. That, it just puts it right out there, doesn't it? Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So you got four things that are mentioned there that sometimes happen, and it's, yeah, we're living in a fallen world, and I, I don't know too much else more to say. That's, that's what it is. The important thing is what our response is to this. Whether you're a domestic, a household servant, or whether it's an employer-employee situation. And I, we could say a lot, but I want to try to limit this to, four, or to three things. I want to make three statements about this from the verses that we've looked at. And I, this helps me. What, what's my Christian duty as spelled out in this text in a situation like this? Well, number one, to endure these things unjustly. Now, it's like Peter says, if, if you deserved it, and no credit there. But if you didn't deserve it and you do this, then you're following the example of Christ, which he takes great pains to point out. We're coming to that. First of all, it's God's will. Look at verse 15. It's back in the section that we looked at last week. But for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In a different context of civil responsibility, he still tells us to submit even when you have people that are know-nothings or people who are unjust or unfair, and we, we talked about this last week, so this is God's will for us. And it says it in verse 21 again, you have been called to this. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, the just for the unjust, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is God's will. It's not God's will for us to lash out at them. Sometimes we do that. We've all done that. So I'm not going to jump up and down too hard on you. I'm sure we've all done that. But, you know, if you get cuffed and you don't cuff somebody back, unless you just get into a self-defense situation, but when you're know, in a situation like this where, where it's coming at you largely because of your position or testimony, that's probably not the context in which to do that. It's also the key to an effective testimony. How are we going to show these people anything different? And this is the end. You put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's talked about this. Um, he said in verse 14, um, 14, let's see, that's not quite what, uh, what I was after, but in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, on the day of visitation. So that's the second statement I'd like to make. And the third statement that I'd like to make really comes to the heart of something that's in our text for today. And with this, we're going to transition to this next section. But this is pure grace. 
When we're able to do this, this is pure grace because this is not us. If someone threatens you, if someone reviles you, if someone strikes you, if someone threatens you, what does you want to do? Return the favor. <laughs> I just, I mean, you know, I, have you seen some of these things? It seems like there's one about every week. And these people with this road rage is just crazy. It's getting to the place where it's not even safe to drive. You never know what fool's out there and what, you know, they, there's some perceived offense and they're going to, it's worth running you off the road or it's worth shooting at you or, I, yeah, we, we've just, this place has gone completely nuts. But this is pure grace. Now, where do I get this from? Well, because it says so twice. And this is where I think ESV does do a good job with the, the translation work here. Um, it says, for this is a gracious thing. Literally, it would read, this is grace. This is grace. Um, King James says, this is thankworthy, so you can, you can get that thought, but I really like to see where, it, where is this coming from. Where is this thankworthiness coming from? It's coming because of God's grace. At the end of verse 20, he repeats the same thing again. For this is grace. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Folks, where are we going to find the strength? Where are we going to find the ability to, as Jesus, turn the other cheek? Only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. So what he's describing here, just realize we're not capable of this in and of ourselves. But God can give us the grace. Paul has it this way in, this sounds remarkably similar. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13, when reviled, we bless. This is not the natural you and me. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. No one likes that. All right, let's look at this now because I think this is, Peter is so anxious to get to this and um, uh, this is rich beyond words and I, I say that because I won't do it justice. I'm not sure anybody will really do it justice, but Christ's example. All right, so that's verse 21. Unto this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Pretty clear what that verse is trying to say, but there's more in the verse than what we're usually getting from it. So let's get the obvious from it first. Remember when the WWJD came out? <laughs> I mean, you know, when I first thought, thought of that, well, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, I don't know that it's completely true, but well, you can think about that. It, you know, it's, it's sobering. What would Jesus do? Um, I don't know that we always know everything he would do, but um, we know a lot, so more than we do. <laughs> uh, but Christ's example is the pinnacle of this grace that we're talking about this. And when we see this, exhibited in him, then this is where we have this whole idea of his example guides us. And it certainly does emphasize the idea of an example, and it says that we are to follow in his steps. Now, having said that, 
I will tell you the next thing. But the real power of this grace and the real impetus of this passage, if we only see an example in what Christ did, then we've missed some of the most intense theology that, that we've come across. And Peter, you know, this is always interesting to me because people are always saying, well, you know, Peter is portrayed as a rustic fisherman. And, um, you know, some liberal scholarship even comes along and says he couldn't have written this because it's too, um, no, he knows too much. And he, the Greek he writes is too, on too high a level. Ah, that's to misunderstand that verse in Acts when it says that they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. You know this in the King James? We think of unlearned and ignorant. It simply means, all those words when you, when you re, uh, study those words, all they mean is, number one, they were private they didn't have, and they, they didn't have formal education. They weren't like the rabbinic uh, situation. They weren't like Paul who came up under the feet of Gamaliel. They were just private people, but it doesn't mean they were dumb. And Peter was certainly not dumb. And, but, but he's going to unleash on us something here that, you know, this rivals anything you'll find anywhere, really. And by the way, uh, it's not like we haven't already seen a few of these things. So in verse, in the beginning, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's no mean concept. We're not going back. I'm just telling you, this isn't the first time we've run into something sort of, sort of uh, profound. Then he tells us later in the first chapter, he says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption is no mean concept either. In chapter 2, verse 9, now, maybe you thought, or chapter 2, verse 8, maybe you thought when we got to this verse, I was following the wisdom of a professor in seminary who said this, if they persecute you in one verse, flee to the next. But I wasn't. It's just that it's not worth bogging down. But there is quite a discussion in verse 8. They stumble because they were disobedient, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What does that mean? Yeah, we'll keep moving too. <laughs> but, you know, it's an interesting discussion. Now we come to this. So you notice, let's set this up for what we're going to next. You notice in verse number 21, it obviously talks about an example, but it says something else. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered. What's the next two words? For you. Right? You see that in your Bible? What's that mean? Does that mean he did it for our benefit? As in, what we, we limit what he did to an example? Or is there more? Does it mean he did it in our place? And I, I don't want to get into arguments about the language here, but even if you don't go that way to prove your point or to make your point, it's obvious that it means he suffered in our place because of what he says as he develops this. Notably, look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds or stripes you have been healed. 
So his suffering was, the 50 cent word is vicarious. In our place, substitutionary is a word that we've also used. And this is what Paul, I think, is trying to say. If you want the parallel thought in Paul, look at this. See, it's not just see an example here. It's to, to really experience the maximum power of this grace. To have these words really impact our lives and our hearts to the deepest extent that God wants them to, we have to see in this something more than an example. And Paul says it this way, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who, does this sound like 1 Peter 2.25 or 4? That he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So how I put this, uh, grappling for some way to try to get this point across. The power of this grace is more than seeing an example. It's drinking in redeeming love. How would we do that? If you, if you wanted to do that, if you wanted to portray redeeming love to people in such a way that they just went away absolutely mesmerized with the grace of God, the just for the unjust, that he would suffer for us when we are as worthless and hell-deserving as we are, how would you do that? Well, i just tell you how Peter does it, and he's led by the Holy Spirit, so that's a good thing. How better to portray this than Isaiah 53? In verses 22 through 25, we have five or six allusions, and I give them for you there, but that probably doesn't help you very much. Uh, one other thing I want to say before I move off of this slide is, um, another thing I like about the alternate translation of this we don't have it here, but the King James preserves it. You have verse 22, verse 23, verse 24, all beginning with the same relative pronoun. It means who. Who his own self bore our sins in his body on the tree. Who did no sin, neither was guile found. You get it if you want to go back and look at that. But let's do this instead. So here it is for you. What I just had there, I have here. So verse 22 in our text says he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There it is. That's the first one. Verse 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and so forth. Verse 7. So this is sort of Peter's loose rendition of this idea. It's his portrayal of the same thought that's in this verse not so much a quotation or a citation, but he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before her its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the second one. Verse 22 has two, um, maybe three, because if you look at verse 4 and 12 in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 24, he, he himself bore our sins, bore, that's what you're looking for. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. All right, look at verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Verse 12 says, yet he bore the pain of the sin of many. Verse 24b, by his wounds you have been healed, or stripes. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his, with his wounds we are healed. 
And here's the last one. For you, in verse 25, were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd or pastor and overseer of your souls. And you know Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what is taught here? Uh, we're at getting low on time, so I wish I had more time to spend, but what is taught here? What's Well, substitutionary atonement is taught here. For one, as I said in verse 21, also suffered for you in your place, is the, is the thought there, not just for your benefit, in your place. And it spells that out in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Also, his sinless perfection is taught in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And you, have, you can't have the one without the other. Because no one can be your substitute who's also a sinner. This is, where, this is Paul's argument in Romans 5 when he says, For a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So... Good people might do things for other people, but we're all sinners, and each of us has to face our own condemnation. Christ is not that way. And, and look, folks, there's a lot of verses. I didn't give them to you here. You can go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For you have made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. You can go to Hebrews chapter 7. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We never back away from maintaining that the Scriptures teach the absolute sinless perfection, impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. It qualified him to be our substitute. But something that isn't taught, and I'll just mention this quickly, because some people get a little carried away and want to say because of verse 25b, by his stripes or wounds you have been healed, that physical atonement uh, or physical healing is included in the atonement, well, maybe one day, <laughs> you know, when we're no longer in this body. That's not how the, the healers take it. They take it in the sense, well, this verse teaches that healing's in the atonement. You know, it doesn't teach that here. So don't give people false hope. This, all this does is impugn the scriptures when we, we rest them like that, and then they don't, it doesn't work out because it's not what it taught in the first place. Look at the tense. By his stripes or wounds, you have been healed. Well, how do you tell a guy that's got cancer or something, he hasn't been healed? So what is he supposed to do, just claim that? Throw your crutch away. That's not what it's teaching. It's simply teaching that Christ did these things for us, in the ultimate sense, everything that was needed for us to be in heaven in a perfect body is included in the work on the cross. But all those things aren't going to be realized in this life, right? And we're all looking forward to when that's... I mean, you know, Al Emery and I were talking about birthdays before the class started, so there might be some exceptions to this in the class, but for a lot of us, we don't brag about them anymore. But we're glad we have them. You don't have them, that's a different problem. So, life can get tough down here and the going can get rough, but God is good and, and um, I, you know, I suppose in the right circumstances, all of us, 
I've been with many people who have prayed that the Lord would take them. They've been in, in that kind of a way. And I understand that. I've, I've, never, I've never felt that it was wrong for people to... You have to submit it to the Lord's will, of course. But I've always, my heart's always been touched by people that get to the place that that's their earnest, sincere prayer. But we have a lot that God is doing for us, a lot that's good, a lot that we enjoy. So we're not necessarily in a hurry. When God calls, we want to be ready. But boy, I'll tell you, when he calls, huh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Everything beyond is better. Well, we have to conclude, so I'm just going to make a couple of quick statements. You and I have been called both to experience this grace, so we need to experience the grace the power of this grace and salvation. And in our daily experience, we need to have it too because that's the only way you're going to accomplish this, that what is said here. Um, Paul's analog to this about um, living this way, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, you find in Romans 6. You can look at those verses later. Um, when we do this, he mentions credit in the way it's translated here, back up in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But when we do what God is talking about here and find his grace sufficient in suffering, then who gets credit for that or the glory for that, as the King James renders it, is God. Verse 20 and verse 21. I want to close with just a little quick story. You know, we have a lot of rich hymns that we sing that were written by a lot of fine people, but a lot of you will know Francis uh, Havergal, who wrote a lot of the songs, many songs that we sing that are very meaningful. And you know, there's a story behind one that's entitled, I Gave Myself, I Gave My Life for Thee. That so it goes, she saw a painting that really depicted the suffering of Christ. That's what I was trying to say this morning. Where would you go to try to inspire people to live this way? And when she saw this, the crown of thorns, the blood, all of these things, there was a caption on the painting, so the story goes, that says, this I have done for thee, what hast thou done for me? And she wrote a poem, she wasn't satisfied with it. How many times have we done stuff like that? I don't know, how many sermons have I crumpled up and thrown in the trash? And she chucked it in the fireplace. Well, it didn't go in. Her father found it and told her he thought that it was quite worthy and that it, she should preserve it. Here, here it is. This is a masterful presentation of that idea that she saw. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightest ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou done for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou done for me? And she continues, My father's house of light, my glory-circled throne, I left to earthly, for earthly night, for wandering sad and lone. I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left aught for me? I left, I left it all for thee. Hast thou left aught for me? And there's two more verses I won't take the time for. But folks... If we keep looking to Jesus, and that's my whole point, he is the sufficiency that we need. Gracious Father, bless us now as we prepare for the service to follow. Bless Pastor Andrew as he preaches to, to us. 
And Lord, tune our hearts to you in such a way that we will truly worship you today in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.